Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. I don't know how long tonight's going to be. We'll see. But what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to try to get through verses 4 through 6 of Revelation 20 and hopefully maybe be done with this whole mini-series within a series on eschatology and then Lord willing, next week we can maybe start going verse by verse through Revelation, and that's going to be a lot of fun. But just to to keep in mind kind of where we're at, we're talking about uh, eschatology, which is the study of the end times or the final things, the last things, stuff like that. Let's say this is a timeline of history, and we're looking at, okay, well, what's going to happen? And we've talked about all these different views um, with the premillennial dispensational view of the the secret rapture where Jesus and the church here, and then they're up here, um, and then starts the seven-year tribulation period. Uh, Jesus returns at that point, and he sets up the 1,000-year kingdom. And so we have spent a lot of time talking about, you know, well, what about the rapture? What about this seven-year tribulation period? Um, Even last week, this is as far as we got when we were talking about the binding of Satan, and uh, if you were here last week, good for you, and you're back, so that's awesome. Uh, If you weren't here, go and listen to that one and try to work out for yourself what that actually means. And so, kind of where we're at now is the actual millennium, the 1,000-year period that is talked about here in Revelation chapter 20. So, if you have your Bibles, I want us to start in verse 3, and we're going to read through verse 4. So, this is what the Bible says. Uh, and threw him into the pit. And we're also going to have it up on the screen tonight for anybody who might not have a Bible. Plus, we're going to be looking at a lot of different verses in the Bible. So, rather than having you flip, it's just going to be up on the screen. So, uh, he threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer uh, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released um, for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads um, or on their hands. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, this is the famous passage about the 1,000 years, the millennium, right? And it seems like a pretty straightforward passage, right? You read this, and the simplest, most straightforward understanding of this is what? This is a literal thousand-year period, right? You read this, hey, a thousand years is going to take place. This is what's going to happen before, after, during, and it's a thousand years. The most simple reading of that is that it is a thousand years. That's, in fact, the, the dispensationalist view is that it is a literal thousand years. The historic premillennialist says that it is a literal thousand years. Even the postmillennialists, some, they go back and forth. So there's like a split, right? But like some postmillennial will say that the, the 1,000 years is a literal, and others will say that it is symbolic. It is only the, I'm not going to spell it out. This is the only letter that you need to know. The amillennialist is the only one who says, well, maybe it's not a literal thousand years. That's where the name amillennial comes from. Uh, A in Greek is a negation, so it means literally no millennium, which is not exactly their viewpoint, but 
But you get the idea. It's saying that they believe there is not a literal thousand years, but that this would represent um, a symbolic number. So they would say it refers uh, to a whole time period, specifically the time between Jesus' ascension and his return. That entire time period, they would say, is the millennium, which would mean, if that's true, what are we in now? The millennium, right? So that is um, their interpretation of that. And for some who oppose this literal thousand-year interpretation, there's one objection that would say, well, hey, listen, this is the only passage in the whole Bible that actually refers to a literal thousand-year period, and it occurs in the most highly symbolic, apocalyptic book in the Bible, so, therefore, we don't have to interpret it literally. Now, that objection is technically fair, but also remember, the Bible only has to say something once in order for it to be true, right? So, at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter if this only occurs in one passage or three passages. As long as the Bible says it once, it's true. I mean, I think there's only one verse that says that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one in here would question that, would we? We wouldn't go, well, it only appears once, so I don't know about that. No, if the Bible says something once, it is true, and it needs only say something once. So that objection of the whole, it only occurs in one passage, and it's in a highly metaphorical, symbolic book, it's fair, but it's weak. The question that we need to be asking, if we're going to determine, okay, is it literal or is it metaphorical, symbolic, is do we have any legitimate reason to interpret this in any other way other than literally, right? So the most plain reading is a literal thousand years. We all agree on that? But it does occur in a highly metaphorical, symbolic book, apocalyptic literature. So it is a legitimate question to ask, is there any reason, legitimate reasons, we should wonder whether or not this should be literal or symbolic? And I think we do have a couple reasons we should consider. First and foremost, and I didn't give you a handout tonight, I just wanted you to write. So, Revelation is apocalyptic literature that utilizes highly figurative and symbolic language. So, the fact that it occurs in Revelation, the genre itself, gives us a legitimate reason to question whether or not this is a literal thousand years or a symbolic thousand years. The fact that it is occurring in Revelation should already make us go, okay, we need to be asking if this is literal or not. The second thing that we should consider is um, that numbers all throughout Revelation are used symbolically. There, there are a couple times when numbers are used quite literally, like the seven churches that are in Asia Minor. There, there were literally seven churches. But all throughout Revelation, uh, numbers are used symbolically. Do you, do you remember when we talked about, towards one of the first uh, studies in Revelation, we talked about the seven spirits of God. And we said, well, that was a symbolic way of referring to the fullness of the Holy Spirit, because seven means fullness, completeness, wholeness, and we don't believe that there are seven Holy Spirits or seven spirits of God. We believe that is saying, it's a way of referring to the full presence of the Holy Spirit. Um, There's a passage in Revelation, in I believe chapter 11, which is going to be super fun to talk about that night, looking forward to it, where it talks about the two witnesses that come to earth during a certain time, and they're witnessing and prophesying and doing all this kind of stuff, Well, there's good reason to believe that the two there is symbolic, and it's not actually referring to two people, but there's a lot of Old Testament um, 
I don't want to get too much into that. There's a lot of Old Testament stuff that goes into that passage. So the number two there is probably metaphorical or symbolic. We read about the four corners of the earth. I don't know if you know this about earth, contrary to flat earth people, but the earth is round. So uh, there aren't technically four corners of the earth. It's just a symbolic way of referring to what? To the whole earth. The four corners of the earth is referring to the whole earth. Even like the number 12 in Revelation is used in symbolic and metaphorical ways. 12 is often used in its multiples to refer to the people of God, right? There were 12 tribes of Israel. How many disciples did Jesus had or have? He had, he had 12. And then also think about its multiples. There's that famous passage about the 144,000 that were sealed. Well, it's a symbolic way of referring to the fullness of God's people, the entirety of his people. So numbers throughout Revelation are used symbolically. Uh, another point is that the number 10 and its multiples, and I don't know if you know this about the number 1,000, but it's a multiple of 10. So 10 and its multiples are used throughout Revelation and the Bible to represent and signify like indefiniteness and magnitude and completeness. So something that is so grand that you can't even hardly wrap your mind around it. So, so think about this, Revelation chapter 5, verse 11, it'll be on the screen. This is what the Bible says. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times uh, 10,000 and thousands of thousands, right? Okay, so clearly John didn't have time to count the whole multitude. So he's like, okay, how do we represent this? 10,000 and then thousands upon thousands upon thousands. He's saying what? It's a large number of angels that he's seeing here. It's a large multitude that he's seeing. It's so indefinite and big, you just can't even really put a number to it, so let's put a thousand up there and just kind of multiply it, right? And then think about Psalm chapter 50, verse 10. Again, it's going to be on the screen. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. Now, here's my question to you. Let's think about this. Does God only own the cattle on a thousand hills? But that 1,001st hill well, that's not God's. That belongs to someone else. Is that what the Bible is saying here? No. It's a metaphorical way, a symbolic way of saying it's all mine. The, the, the cattle on a thousand hill, everything is mine. So just put a number to it. What's a big number that's going to just grasp this idea of bigness? It's going to be a thousand, right? So Daniel chapter 7, verse 10. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. And a thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. So again, you have this large crowd. How do you represent it with a number? A thousand thousands, thousand thousands, ten thousand, ten thousands, thousand thousand thousand. You get the idea, right? You want to represent something big and grand in the Bible? Put a thousand up there, or a multi, or a, a, a multiple of a thousand. So that's how it's used throughout the Bible. And then this, this kind of this other point, it's very interesting. The Greek word here for 1,000 is only used one other time in the entire New Testament. And the only other time it is used in the entire New Testament occurs in a passage that just incidentally talks about the return of Christ, which is pretty interesting, right? So 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 7 through 8. The Bible says, but by the same word, the heavens and the earth now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. 
But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Now that's pretty interesting. That is literally the only other time in the entire New Testament outside of the book of Revelation that the word thousand appears. And it appears in a passage referring to the return of Christ. And what is the Bible saying here? You can't understand God's timing, right? <laughs> a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. So the big thing is like the small thing and the small thing is like the big thing. What's the Bible saying? It's saying here's this large number that you can't even grasp, but don't worry for the Lord, it's like nothing and he's going to return. Don't worry about counting down the days. Don't start at a thousand and go, okay, I got this now and that'll equal one day and blah, blah, blah. He's saying it's just a, it's a big time, right? Can we, can we get that? It's a big time period that's happening here. So when you consider all these factors together, I'm not saying one way or the other whether you should begin to interpret this symbolically or metaphorically or literally. I'm not trying to push you one way. But what I am saying is that there are legitimate reasons, as you can see, to question whether or not we should be interpreting this symbolically rather than literally. And the surmounting evidence of the Bible here and its usage of a thousand kind of starts to lend itself towards that symbolic interpretation. And if that's the case, and a thousand usually signifies the fullness of a large time period, it would make sense for it to represent the entire time between Jesus' ascension and his return, right? If you were a biblical writer, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and you're trying to say, okay, how can I define that large period of time in which it's going to take that much time for Christ to return, what would I do? Well, if you're a biblical writer, what's the number that comes to your mind? Thousand. <laughs> That's how you represent it throughout the rest of the Bible, right? We've seen it used that way throughout the rest of the Bible. So you just say a thousand years, a millennium, a large chunk of time that's representing the fullness of that time period of the church age until Jesus returns. And notice what it says here, that during this 1,000-year period, um, it says that Christ is ruling and reigning right now. Did you see that in verse 4, Revelation chapter 20, verse 4? It said, then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of the Lord, those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So it's a picture of Christ ruling and reigning, right? He's seated on a throne. He, which means that he's you know, in a place where he is ruling and reigning. A king would rule from a throne. And then ruling with him are those who are martyred for their faith, as well as all Christians, because it said it's those who do not align themselves with the beast. They don't receive the mark of the beast. And these rule and reign during the 1,000-year time period. Now, again, if we're going to just entertain this idea that the 1,000 years is happening now, the millennium is happening now during the church age, well, then we have to ask another question, right? What's the question we should be asking based on what we just read? That is a great, great question that we will not talk about tonight. <laughs> Good for you, but not the question I'm looking for. So it says, Christ is... if. During this 1,000-year period, Christ is seated on the throne and he's ruling and reigning with all Christians. 
And if we're saying it's possible that this is referring to the time period of now, I think the question would be, well, is there any biblical evidence to suggest that Christ is ruling and reigning right now, right? Like, wouldn't you want to know that? Are we waiting for some future reign to happen, or is Christ ruling and reigning now? So, rather than hearing my opinion, let's just go and see what the Bible says. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much superior to the angels, as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So it says, Jesus is seated in the place right next to the Father in a throne on high. Okay, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 22. Uh, It's talking about the power that worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, did we catch that? Not only in this age now, but in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22. Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to Him. 1 Corinthians 15. For He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when it says all things are put into subjection... It is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. And then maybe my favorite psalm in the entire Bible, Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your people, or in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. So, is it clear, based on what we've just read, that Jesus is currently ruling and reigning from heaven? Yes, yeah, I think we can all agree on that. That's not even one of the controversial things. I mean, do we need to go back to the binding of Satan? We can get, get back into that. But no, it's very clear. Jesus is ruling and reigning now. From heaven, And it's interesting, it says that he's ruling in the midst of his enemies. The scepter extends forth from Zion, which is the place of the city of God, the people of God. And so Jesus is in heaven, ruling in the midst of his enemies. How is he doing that? How is he exercising his rule and his power in this world? The church, that's exactly right. Jesus is ruling and reigning from heaven but in the midst of his enemies through us, the church. We are the symbol of God's power in this world because we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God. We have the power of God literally in us. And so this is what the Bible is saying here. And it says that the Father is making the enemies of Christ his footstool. And that it's really interesting because this is not how... Basically, if you were going to a university uh, that was had a mascot like the Crusaders you might want to change it because, like, don't you think the Crusaders got it wrong? They, they read passages like this, and they said, okay, we've got to bring all people into Christ's dominion. 
And so we're going to pick up swords and we're going to bring them by force into the church. And they're going to join us that way. And notice, that's not what the Bible said here, right? Like, that's how the kings of old would conquer. You'd go to a city and there'd be some people there who were your enemy and you'd use power and might to bring them under your authority. Well, that's not what Jesus does. The beautiful thing here is it says that the people will offer themselves freely on the day of his power. And so what this is referring to is conversion. Jesus is not going around saying, hey, I'm forcing you to join my... He's not dragging people into his kingdom, kicking and screaming. He's sending forth his people as his ambassadors into the world with the gospel message, indwelled by the Spirit of God. And when they preach the gospel and they share the good news about Jesus, the power of God comes upon unbelievers. They're convicted of sin, and they see the beauty of the glory of God and the truth of the gospel. And what do they do? They give themselves freely to Christ. They lay down their lives and willingly join his kingdom because they have been won by his grace, right? So in this a beautiful picture of how Jesus is not being a crusader, dragging people into his kingdom, but he is ruling in the midst of his enemies through his church by sending his church on a mission. And notice what the Bible says here in verses 5 through 6. It says that, that during this period, the believers who are ruling with him are those who are martyred for their faith, those who died or are now in heaven with Christ, and even believers here on earth. And it talks about the rest of the dead did not come to life, until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So, unbelievers who die, they are not resurrected during this time, right? That's not what the Bible says here. It says that they remain dead until a time for judgment. Their resurrection will come when Christ returns and we go to the final judgment. But the first resurrection that's spoken of here is a spiritual resurrection, right? Do you see that? Why, why would we think that this resurrection that's being referred to here is spiritual rather than a physical bodily resurrection? Partially. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. So I guess we can, we'll, we'll kind of jump ahead, although I don't really want to jump ahead that much, but because it's complicated, right? So if you're a dispensationalist, they, again, this isn't every single dispensationalist, so I'm just going to give this caveat every time. I'm speaking in generalities because there are nuanced views. I respect that. You can have your nuanced view. But most dispensationalists would believe in about four different resurrections. So um, at the, the time of the rapture, you would have pretty much all uh, believers of so the church are resurrected at that time. That's a physical bodily resurrection uh, according to most dispensationalists. And then uh, when Christ returns, this, this would be the whole church, those who have died. And then it, the, uh, the return of Christ to begin the, the millennium, you have a resurrection of Old Testament saints. And the Old Testament saints are uh, raised up at that time. And then here at the end of, well, and also you, you have another resurrection here 
those who died during the tribulation who became believers during that time, they're also resurrected. And then at the end of the millennium, you have the resurrection of unbelievers who were resurrected at that time. So you have these four different resurrections that are happening according to the dispensationalist view. And my question is, why should we believe that the resurrection that's being talked about here is spiritual rather than a physical bodily resurrection? Yeah, there are a number of things that go into this. You could ask the question, do we believe that believers who are in heaven right now have a physical body? That's a question to consider, right? Do they have a physical body? Does the perishable inherit the imperishable? Uh Uh-huh. Do they have them now? Okay, yeah, that's all. Hey, we're, all, we're all friends here. We're just asking questions. We're just talking. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 22 to 24. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Now do we feel better equipped to answer the question? Why why should we possibly believe that the resurrection being talked about in Revelation 20 is spiritual rather than physical? I think it just gave us the answer here. Okay, yeah, but what else? I mean, just, just look at the timing, right? Each in their own order. Christ is raised first, then when are other people raised? Bodily resurrection. At his coming, right? So then you have to ask, okay, well, if you're dispensationalist, is is this his coming? And we would then agree that that's possible, and this could be referring to that. This is his coming. There's a physical resurrection there. But then notice the very first word of verse 24. And then after comes the end. But this isn't the end, right? Like, it'd be way down here somewhere. And so what many dispensationalists will do is they'll put a gap there. It's kind of like the gap theory in Genesis, but it's also, there's a gap theory in 1 Corinthians. They'll say, the then, there's a big gap there, and this is the gap. Here to here. Jesus comes, this is his coming, and there's a resurrection, and then comes the end. But this is pretty quick in succession, is it not? Like the the way that you were reading this, and this is an epistle. This is not apocalyptic literature. This isn't metaphorical or symbolic. Like this is straightforward. Paul's writing to the Corinthians. He's very logical, very literal. And he says, okay, you want a breakdown of how it's going to go? Here's how it is. Your hope is in Christ. He was raised from the dead. You're going to be raised from the dead. When? At his coming. And then what? Then comes the end. Do you see how quick in succession that is? He's he's showing us that that this resurrection is going to happen at Jesus' coming, his second coming, 
when all things are coming to an end. Then comes the end, and what happens immediately after that? The kingdom is delivered to the Father. It's not something else. It's not a tribulation. It's not a thousand-year period. It is the end. But what's being referred to here is not the end, right? This is referring to what happens during that thousand years. And so this is a spiritual resurrection. When believers die, they go to be with Christ, right? Absent from the body, you're at home with the Lord. You're in the presence of Jesus. You're not a physical entity at that point. You're some sort of spiritual being. But you are alive and you are with Christ. And it says, blessed is the one who partakes in that first resurrection. Uh, that, that The second death has no power over them. You are going to be with Christ during that time. It also means that those who are alive now, in, a, in one way, we have also experienced a spiritual resurrection, right? We were dead, but now what? We're alive in Christ. We have been raised to new life in Christ. And so that is the guarantee that when we die our physical death, I'm still going to be with Christ. I'm going to be alive with him, and I don't have to worry about that. And praise the Lord, it says the second death has no power. So the first resurrection is a spiritual resurrection, and then the second resurrection is a physical one, where we get our resurrection bodies that we'll have for all of eternity in glory with God. And converse that, the, the first death is a physical death, and the second death is a spiritual death. And praise the Lord, again, that we will not experience that second death. And so, uh, again, just to, to end this very quickly, Joseph mentioned something about the priesthood. Just something to note here, that, that language that they will be priests of God in Christ, that is the exact language that is used of Christians living now, the Bible says that we are a royal priesthood, and even Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, it says, And from Jesus, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, again, this is not something we are waiting on in the future. We're not one day going to become a kingdom of priests to God. The Bible says we are now. If you're a believer, you're part of that royal priesthood. Okay? So, I think next week we, we, we'll touch on the mark of the beast. That's a good point. You know, I didn't even really think about getting into that. But we will. We'll dive into that. But I just wanted to end with five little things real quick. I know you're like, oh, five things, and it's Alex, it's going to be, an, it's not, I'm just going to read them. That's all I'm going to do, okay? And I won't even say hardly anything else, because here's what I know. I know when we get into, like, this type of stuff, and we're looking at all these different views, and we're considering, okay, what's most biblical? There's a lot of disagreement, right? And we've been exposed to a lot of new stuff, like last week, and a lot of stuff we haven't considered. Many of us have never even considered whether or not this is literal or symbolic, and whether or not there are good reasons for thinking that. But here are five takeaways that no matter what your view is, we can all agree on as Christians. And I think it's a good reminder. So number one is that Jesus is ruling and reigning now. No one disagrees with that. He's ruling and reigning now. And listen, that's a comfort for us. It means that no matter what happens to us in this life, Jesus is sovereign and he is over everything. He's ruling and reigning. Secondly, the other thing we can agree on is that Jesus' kingdom will prevail and the Father will steadily defeat the enemies of Christ. So no matter what it looks like in the world, when you see all the sin, you see all the war, 
you see all the UFOs being shot down in America right now, and you're wondering what in the world is going on, there's a comfort here that no matter what happens to the kingdoms of man, the kingdom of God will prevail. He will have the victory and dominion. The third thing is that believers are, kingdom, uh, are a kingdom of priests to God with a mission from God to go and make disciples of the nations, to expand Christ's kingdom to the ends of the earth. That's who we are now. That's not something you have to wait on in the future and say, one day I'm going to do that. That's who you are now. You're a priest of God on a mission. Just as Adam and Eve, God told them to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth. Well, we have that same uh, command today as Christians, but the way that we are fruitful and multiply is by making disciples. And we fill the earth with disciples. And so it's a cool little connection there where we have this mission from God. The fourth thing is that believers will never experience the second death. Christ will raise us up and we will be with him forever. And so as terrifying as the first death might be, and everybody, you know, even if you're not afraid of death, most people are afraid of dying. And, and there's not, not much you can do to avoid that, except say, come Lord Jesus, come quickly, okay? Um, and that is terrifying, but the second death is even worse. And it lasts forever, for all of eternity, and one of the greatest comforts of a Christian is that that has no power over us, that we will never experience that. We'll be with Christ. And then fifth, and this may be the best one of all, is that Jesus is coming back. Before the millennium, after the millennium, sometime else if there is such a thing, you know, I don't know if there is, but we don't know when, we don't know the day, we don't know the hour, but every Christian should rejoice and can agree that Jesus is returning and he's coming back for his bride, and that's us. And so that is good news, which means every Christian should be praying, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen? All right, so next week we'll get into some other stuff. We didn't go that far over. But uh, hey, Michael, how about a word of wisdom? 